Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso here with YouTube's no drama car czar, Alex Dykes. Alex, Kia EV6, recently tested, now in your fleet. What are your impressions? Yeah, EV6, it's a, it's a really good first, well, I actually, I can't say first EV, it's a really good second EV. Well, actually, no, let me go and correct that because I'm, I'm going back here a little bit. It's uh, Kia's third EV in the United States, actually, because I actually had uh, one of Kia's first EVs, the 2016 Soul EV. Uh, we bought one with our own hard-earned cash, um, and it was a perfectly acceptable short-range thing. Uh, then they had the Nero, now they have the EV6, and the EV6 is a thoroughly modern 21st century Tesla fighting EV with you know long range, 300 miles of range, depending on the trim you get, uh, dual motor setup, quick zero to 60. There's a nearly 600 horsepower version coming later this year. If you want to go zero to 60, way less than four seconds. Uh, and some of the fastest DC fast charge times uh, available in the world. If you want to go faster from a 10% to 80% charge, you're going to have to buy a Porsche that will be double the price of the EV6. Now, let's talk a little bit about this 800-volt architecture, because this is, for a lot of folks, yeah, you yeah. very exciting. T tell me, did you get to experience that, and what have your results been? Yeah, so uh, the the big the big innovation really lately with electric cars has been pushing electric uh, infrastructure improvements, uh, design on the vehicle, battery design, as well as charging infrastructure. So um, a lot of people were really wondering if this was ever going to come, because Electrify America, the largest DC fast charging network in the United States outside of the Tesla network, um, they've been pushing the new 800-volt chargers for quite some time, and they've been installing them all across the U.S., and until recently, there wasn't a lot that could use them. But the big reason you want 800-volt charging is because you can stuff more power into the car quicker. So uh, basic rule of thumb, you double the voltage, you half the current, and it means that for the same size wire, you can put twice the power through there uh, if you double the voltage. Now, there's some additional benefits, actually, because you, you really don't just double the voltage. You also reduce the amount of heating, uh, the amount of resistance that you get over that conductor. So these we're talking about massive amounts of power. The charging stations have liquid-cooled conductors, 350 amps, uh, 1,000 volts is what the Lucid Air will charge at. Um, so we're talking about you know more than five, city blocks in some areas of the United States worth of power consumption that's just going into a battery in a car. Um, and that's how the EV6 can charge so fast. Also, the related Ionic 5 and the upcoming Genesis EV will share the same architecture. Um, but when we take a look at legacy uh, charging standards down at 400 volts, you just can't go that quickly. You know, Tesla's really been pushing the boundaries on their 400 volt infrastructure and 255 kW peak is what you can do there. Um, the average Tesla will take 30 to 40 minutes depending on the exact situation and state of charge to, to get where you can in 18 minutes in some of the newer vehicles. And it's gonna be more and more important when we talk about trucks and SUVs and big EVs. Like I was recently driving the Hummer EV and it is, crazy on so many levels, but the battery pack is absolutely enormous. It is more than double the size of the biggest battery pack we've ever been able to buy in the United States in a Tesla Model X, um, more than double that. So 
charging it takes a long time. And if it wasn't for the newer 800 volt systems, I mean, you'd be spending hours and hours trying to get 200 miles of range. And we can circle around, talk about the Hummer in a moment, or I guess crab walk around and talk about the Hummer. <laughs> but um, that was horrible. I apologize. But let's talk about what it means to have 350 kilowatt, mm -hmm. 800 volt charging. Like in real world terms, I think most people would say charging is no longer a pain when I can do three things. One, find a charger. Two, charge quickly. And three, be able to count on the charger being functional when I find it. Well, we have the quickly part done. <laughs> 70 miles in five minutes with this new architecture from Kia Hyundai and uh, from 10 to 80% in 18 mm -hmm. minutes. Yeah. The tricky part is the combination of all three of those things, which honestly nobody has really achieved well so far. Um, to be perfectly honest, Tesla gets the closest. So if you want to if you want to have that no worries experience and you want to go from point A to point B, have the car do all the calculation for you, reliably end up there when the car says you will get there and charge without error along the way, then Tesla is really the only game in town. Um, and the the advantage there is that Tesla controls everything. This is the Android versus iPhone debate, to be perfectly honest. Um if you're, you know, a devout Android person because you like open standards and the ability to do whatever, then you should really not be into Tesla because Tesla is very, very insular, very closed. And that's why everything works beautifully. They make the chargers. They make the car. They make the software to take the car to the charger. Um, they have methods for waitlisting things. So, you know, if your charger is really busy, there is a method that Tesla has available to them with the car and the software integration, et cetera, to say, this is how long we think it's going to take you to be there in line to charge uh, and then get going. So there's there's that ability to do that even with busy stations. And none of those parallels exist quite right in the outside world. Um, you know, different charger companies, Delta, ABB, et cetera, make the chargers, um, Electrify America or Blink or ChargePoint or whoever operates the charger. Uh, then car manufacturers build the cars to the agreed upon standard. And nobody does a lot of testing, which I honestly think is shocking. So when I have spoken to people at Electrify America, for instance, when the Mustang Mach-E had been on sale for three months, they still had not received a Mach-E from Ford to do their validation and testing on. Um, same thing with Kia and Hyundai with the EV6 Ionic 5. Electrify America hasn't received one to do validation on the nation's largest charging network outside of, uh, of Tesla. Um, and the manufacturers say, well, it's because we're trying to get them to customers. We don't have the inventory around, but it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. If you, if you can't get everybody to have all the components at the same time to test with, how are you ever going to make sure this thing works? Um, this last weekend, uh, our long-term EV6, which we literally bought ourselves with our own cash, we ran down to the Kia dealer, wrote him a check, and bought an EV6. Um, we had troubles charging the EV6 this weekend. Uh, the charging station aired out twice. It was, you know, charging very rapidly, but then occasionally would air out. Um, and that's something that we saw in the Mach-E. It's something that we've seen in uh, the ID4 as well. So it's it's not an isolated case. Now. It's important to talk about this because on paper, if you look at Electrify America, you're like, okay, the future is here. We have a national fast charging network to rival the Tesla superchargers. Uh, but in reality, you're going to wind up trying to find service at a patchwork of chargers from various networks, various styles, various rates of charge. And the next best thing to Tesla is something called plug and charge, which is really mm -hmm. a way of trying to stitch these into one quilt. Could you talk a little bit about that and whether the Kia sure. 
has plug and charge? It does not, which I think is a bummer. So at the moment in the U.S., um, as I recall, uh, Porsche was the first. Uh, actually, Ford was the first, then Porsche was second with plug and charge. So uh, the inaugural customer on the Electrify America network, which is owned by Volkswagen, was not actually Volkswagen or Porsche, a subsidiary of Volkswagen. It was Ford, go figure. Um, and that was meant to just simplify the the chart, the paying for charging uh, of, of the vehicle. So you plug your Ford into the Electrify America station, it recognizes the VIN number, it validates, and then it starts charging. Um, plug and charge is helpful, um, but we still have the patchwork network of charging vendors out there. So plug and charge in my neck of the woods only works in Electrify America. As I recall, there is one other charge provider on the East Coast that uh, works with plug and charge. But here in California, the only places you're going to find are EA stations. Um, the EV6 does not support it, but I have noticed, oddly enough, that uh, plug and charge takes a little bit longer to authenticate than to just use the Electrify America app on your phone. So the way this works with most EA stations and a lot of charging stations is there's an app on your phone. You drive up to there, uh, you slide the little your finger across the station that you're plugged into, and then it will authorize your charging. Um, this is something that they're kind of working on. For the longest time, a lot of DC fast charge stations had no credit card reader. Um, there was no contact pay contactless payment method uh, for some reason. So your only option was the app. And what if you didn't have the app or you didn't have your, your little card that you had to get in the mail, et cetera? Um, it's kind of a pain. So things are marching in the right direction. But still an odd patchwork of things. Like right now, the big problem with Ford's plug-in charge is that if you want the lowest rates at Electrify America, you can't activate plug-in charge because on the plug-in charge framework, for some reason, Electrify America will only offer the higher pay-as-you-go rates. Now, regarding the EV6 and its intrinsic capabilities, once you were able to find a charge, were you able to verify some of these claims, 70 miles in five minutes, mm -hmm. 10 to 80% in under 20? You were able to see this happen. I actually was, and uh, there's already a charge curve video of the Ionic 5 on the channel, if anybody's interested. Uh, there's some of the contents on EV Buyer's Guide, and some of it's over at Alex and Autos, uh, but you can head over to YouTube and find those, uh, where we basically drove the Ionic 5 down to 8% and charged it all the way up to 100% to see exactly how fast it would charge. The answer is very, very fast. Uh, with the EV6, I have not been able to do that part yet, but we have done segments of that, so 10% to 60% or so, just uh, because that was what our, our particular trip at the time needed. But yeah, it'll do 250, 260 kW uh, without a problem. Now, in your time with the manufacturer at Press Events, this is the highest level of fast charging we've seen on any mass market vehicle. And we know that with the lower rates of charge and lower voltage architectures of Tesla, that battery degradation is a concern over time if you supercharge constantly. Has Hyundai Kia talked about the long-term prospects for maintaining the at least an 80% state of charge if you constantly use a 350 kilowatt fast charger? Yeah, this is an interesting question and one that we don't necessarily have good data for just yet because we can't use the Tesla parallel for other EVs necessarily. Um, Tesla uses different battery chemistry than other manufacturers do. Uh, they also use different battery vendors. Cooling methodology is different, et cetera. Um, we have a lot of good data on the Leaf. The Leaf did not fare well if you frequently DC fast charged it. Disclaimer, disclaimer, yeah. air-cooled battery. Exactly. And that was my, that was what I was going to say. It's disclaimer is the battery is passively cooled. So you're on your own. And if you're DC fast charging in Phoenix, 
good luck. <laughs> um, pretty much every other EV has an actively cooled battery pack, but not all cooling is equal. Sometimes the packs may be unevenly cooled or they may not be cooled as aggressively, etc. Um, we do know that other manufacturers outside of Tesla, they tend to use battery chemistries that are a little bit less energy dense, tend to be a little bit less prone to, to wear over time. And they also tend to reserve more of the battery pack for battery lifetime, basically. So uh, when we're talking about battery lifetime, uh, temperature, state of charge, and how rapidly you go from one state of charge to the other have effects on battery lifetime and battery performance. So if the battery is overheated and you're rapidly charging or discharging, these are bad situations for battery life. Um, also, total state of charge. So you never want to take your lithium ion battery all the way to zero or all the way to 100% because more degradation happens over time at those charge levels. So to prevent that, for instance, the Mach-E, it reserves about 10% of the battery. So you just can't even use that top 10%. Um, Tesla tends to be a lot more aggressive because they're really pushing those mileage claims. They want, you know, the 300, 400 miles of range on the window sticker. So they will let you use nearly 100% of the battery. They still reserve a tiny bit, but not a whole lot. Um, and that's where the warnings really apply. Please don't charge your battery over 90% because battery lifetime will, you know, result. Um, but when you take a look at a Mach-E, you can never charge the battery beyond 90% because that top 10% simply locked out. Now, another question concerning the uh, EV6 is basically whether it works with the ecosystem of chargers to give you charge information natively in the navigation. Mm -hmm. Did yeah, you find it does that not. Uh, this is this is one area where Hyundai, I think, has really fallen behind. And the best Tesla impersonator, because honestly, Tesla is the benchmark for a lot of this. Let me say that. You know, everybody thinks that I hate Tesla for some reason. I'm not sure how I got that reputation. Um, credit where credit's due, criticism where it is warranted, is my philosophy. Um, but Tesla has done a good job at the software to say, my car needs to go from A to B, what happens in the middle? Um, and Ford has now really taken the baton and done their version of that. So now in the Mach-E, it will take you from A to B. It will, uh, you know, let you know that that you should stop at this charging station because this one is one that works with Mach-E's. So the Mach-E will actually disregard stations that have frequent charging issues. It will also prioritize fast charging stations that can charge at the rate that it needs. Um, then we have sort of in the middle options where we have Volkswagen's ID4. It will take you to chargers, but it will take you to really slow ones and it won't take you to the free ones. Who knows why? And then we have the Hyundai, Kia and Genesis vehicles and their nav system just doesn't insert charging stops at all. Now, it's important to note, as we sort of segue to our main topic today, that EVs and Volkswagen and the Electrify America charging network all have a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. So as we sort of jump now to our main topic, which is Volkswagen in America, the past, present and future, we're definitely going to circle around again to EVs, because depending on who you believe and what you read, Volkswagen may be spending as much as 86 billion globally between now and 2030 to make that EV transition. So, Alex, the first Volkswagen Beetles were brought over to the United States in 1949. They sold two. Volkswagen of America was established in 1955. They actually had their own distribution under their own name, unheard of at the time. Yeah. And by 1970, they had somewhere between 5 and 7% of the U.S. market with 565,000 cars imported. And that's sort of where the fairy tale ends. 
what has Volkswagen been like for the last 50 years and why has it been a study in, frankly, futility? Yeah, it is an interesting question. And I don't, I've pondered this question for a long time. What's wrong with Volkswagen and how do you fix it? I don't know if I have the exact answer to that. Um, when I think about when Volkswagen was successful, I didn't like their products, to be honest. I am not a nostalgic person about the bug or the thing or the transporter or any of that. You know, if Volkswagen wants to bring back a Volkswagen bus, then that is lovely. My next door neighbor would be very, very happy. Um, but for me, why not just make it a, a minivan? I mean, call it a minivan. Why do we need to call it a Volkswagen bus thing? Um, because... Maybe that was the heyday for Volkswagen, but I didn't think their products were great. And I have a, this feeling that people with nostalgia for some of these products eventually circle around to realizing maybe that wasn't so great. Why would I buy the Volkswagen again? And they've had this on-off success with resurrecting the bug now and then, and they sell a few to people that loved their bug in the 1950s, 1960s, and want a modern version of it. But then the next time around, they don't go and buy you know, a, a Jetta or a Passat, which doesn't even exist anymore, they go and buy a Camry. I think in each decade, there's a story to be told since 1970 about why Volkswagen basically failed in the U.S. market. In the 70s, the answer is that they waited too long to transition to water-cooled products and, frankly, new competition. Back in 1970, foreign car in the United States meant a Volkswagen. They That's were the true. first yep. company to import enough parts and service knowledge to actually maintain everything else had been, over that point, uh, imported by specialists like Luigi Cinetti or Max Hoffman or Shell Cavalli. They would bring over the car, they would sell you the car, and then you were on your own. Volkswagen had... In 1965, 900 dealers in the United States, that's that's over 200 more than they have now. They were the game. But in the 1970s, the Japanese and the Germans joined the market. And by the Germans, I mean other Germans. So the question becomes, why weren't they able to keep up in the 70s? Why did they lose the market in the 80s? Was it because they decided to focus on developing markets and they let the U.S. slide? Or was it just the wrong product? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, you know, the Germans, I, I would say, honestly, like the Japanese, have 10, I would say the core Japanese brands, mind you, the Toyotas and Hondas, tend to have very conservative engineering ethos to them. Um, so the Germans, you know, continuation of the air-cooled engine made total sense. It's reliable. It's efficient enough. It meets our need case, et cetera. Why should we go with a more complicated design that's going to be less reliable, harder to tinker with yourself, et cetera? Um, and it, I mean, it sounds logical on paper, but that's just not what people wanted. I think one of the challenges is that in the eighties, VW did sort of drop the ball in the American market because they were ahead of everyone by far with the new Stanton, Pennsylvania factory, us assembly in 1978. That was before any of the Japanese manufacturers understood that you really need to manufacture cars where they're being sold, uh, and the political advantages that brings, they closed that factory in 1988. Mm -hmm. They started focusing heavily on East Asia, Africa, um, Latin America, where they did gain market share. I'm not saying that was a mistake, um, but you started to see this habit of Volkswagen bringing cars into the U.S. that were designed for European markets. So mm -hmm. cars exactly. like the Golf. And that's the problem. They would, they would build them here, but they didn't design them here. <laughs> and it took, it took the Germans... Oddly enough, and, and this I don't understand why, it took the Germans a lot longer to just 
understand the American need for the cup holder, for instance. I mean, the Japanese, they didn't get it, but they quickly said, hey, if they want one of these things, we will design them into it. I don't know why they want this thing in the dash, but we'll we'll give it to them. And the Germans had almost an anti-cup holder attitude. Well, no, you should not have a cup holder. Cup holders are bad. We don't want them. And if if we are forced to give you a cup holder, we will give you the craziest, tiniest, most useless cup holder on God's green earth instead of what Americans actually wanted. Um, and then by the time they started trying to design cars for America, they just weren't good at di- doing it somehow. <laughs> I mean, that really is the case because you look at the problem of communication and, and you could easily say, well, they've got great cars. And they've always had very good cars, but they don't communicate them well. But then you look back and you're like, did Volkswagen really have that kind of a problem? Whether it's the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. with Doyle Dane Birnbach and the car as a politically affirming purchase, very effective. Uh, the 1990s, Farfagnugan, Drivers yeah. Wanted, very effective. The 2000s, Peter Stormare saying he's going to unpimp your auto, very effective. Yeah. So they seem they to have had products. They also had brand. high maintenance costs too, which was an interesting twist. For, for a company that tried the North American manufacturing, they have never been able to get repair parts and servicing down to American or Japanese car norms. So that, that I think, is part of this problem. Um, the Germans love, love engineering their way out of certain things. So they will definitely sometimes make engine transmission uh, and, and related systems under the hood a little bit more complicated than they might otherwise need to be. Um, and then there's less parts commonality with everything else. So they're using European parts suppliers like Bosch rather than American parts suppliers like Delco for yes. their things. And that just ratchets up the price tag for those aftermarket repairs too. I hear that a lot from former Volkswagen owners. And as a former Audi owner, I've had a whole bunch of them. I can tell you that the strength of Volkswagen in the 90s and the 2000s was often the perceived quality of things like the interior, the ride quality, the noise, vibration, and harshness. But those soft touch surfaces, they would warp, they would crack, they would peel. Mechanically, the cars didn't last. You would wind up paying European parts prices for right. some things like a water bottle for the cooling system. It, it, it didn't end well. That was almost always the story outside of warranty with those cars. The funny part, though, is that that's what, that's what a lot of Volkswagen customers seemed to want in a weird sort of way. Like I look at the 90s Volkswagens very positively because that's when it was a discount Audi. So, you know, you could buy a Passat instead of, you know, an A4 and um, and you got the squishier dash bits and you could get a W8 under the hood because why not? Um, and and it was that that less expensive premium car thing that supposedly Volkswagen customers wanted, but then nobody bought it. And then Volkswagen tried to change the theme. So, OK, well, you know, discount Audi wasn't working. So we'll give America a different Passat than the rest of the world and a different Jetta than the rest of the world. We'll make it cheaper. We'll make it bigger. We'll make it drive number because Americans, maybe they just want, um, I don't know, a Chevy Cavalier with a Volkswagen logo on the hood. Um, And it turns out nobody wanted that either. Yeah, it's really important to note that that came out of the decade of the 2000s. If the problem that Volkswagen had in the 90s was that they were more or less importing European cars designed to do battle with the likes of Fiat, Renault, and Peugeot, in the 2000s, it was like the era of megalomania. Ferdinand Pieck had stranglehold on the Volkswagen group. Volkswagen was going to get a twin-turbo V10 diesel-powered SUV, whether they wanted it or not. We were getting the Phaeton 
whether we wanted it or not. Uh, we were going to get the EOS retractable hardtop roadster, whether we wanted it or not. And then there was just some stabbing into the void, like, yeah. why not a minivan, right? Because that's that's a growing market segment. On the first three, I kind of say yay for Volkswagen. I love the V10 Touareg. I love the Vin. Um, EOS, not quite so much, but I know some people that love theirs. Um, but yeah, it just was seem, seemed to be the wrong landing somehow. And then I think part of the problem at Volkswagen has been this, this knee-jerk reaction to everything. The the stumbling, you know, android in a 1980s sci-fi, you know, comedy where, you know, we take a stab at this. That didn't work, but we don't stick with it. We just turn around and stab 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And then you stagger around and stab somewhere else. Um, I think that may be the ultimate problem with Volkswagen is they do tend to do this seesaw thing. And maybe one of the one of their directions will pick up steam, so they will simultaneously double down on it. Well, also somehow going in the other direction. So we, you know, we have the the two reg and we have the Phaeton, but then they left behind their mainstream offerings and just let them age and wither away. Yeah, and I mean the funny thing is, after they decided that America didn't want to discount Audi, which is really what Volkswagen tried to be in the two thousands. They decided that Americans wanted things that were not too fine, but really big. So that started the, the like the modern era of VW in America. We're going to give you a Passat that's bigger than any Passat ever. We're going to give you a Taos that's you know priced like a subcompact, but compact sized. We're going to give you a Tiguan that's the biggest truck in its class. And we're going to give you an Atlas that's not all that powerful or luxurious, but it's the size of a Durango. And you will be yep. happy. And... Oddly enough, this direction recently seems to be working for them. Passat aside, um, I think Passat would have been fine if it had been, I don't know, 20 years earlier. That would have been exactly what the customer is looking for. But bothering to redesign the Passat in a shrinking market was never going to look good for Volkswagen. Atlas, Taos, and uh, and that segment, the, the crossover segment, that seems to be doing okay for Volkswagen, if nothing else, because a rising tide buoys all ships. Um, and Atlas is truly huge. It's got an enormous cargo area, comfortable third row. It's very family friendly. I don't think I've ever seen a TV ad for it, though. Yeah, uh, it, they are remarkably low-profile cars. To be perfectly frank, they've got cars that no one knows exist. Like, mm -hmm. they've got those big American-style cars. But then if I told you there's a 300-horsepower liftback, dual-clutch, German-built sports sedan, you'd be like, hmm, maybe BMW Grand Coupe? Uh, mm -hmm. Audi? Maybe Audi A5 liftback? Nope. Volkswagen Ardeon, which apparently exists. Yep, yep. That is true. Um and another, that's another odd entry in a shrinking segment. I, I don't understand what the point was to bring it here. Um, and some will say bringing a product to America can't be that expensive. We're talking tens and tens of millions of dollars for people that don't know, just to bring an already existing product that's for sale in Europe and, and homologate it for entry into the United States market. It has to be crash tested. The lights need to be redesigned. Um, it has to be emissions validated, which can be very, very expensive. Um, there may be emissions control changes that are required, actual hardware changes, et cetera. And then you have to deal with all of the warranty inventory. So just selling five cars in America is not the problem. It's the fact that you've got to bring in all the radiators and the nuts and the bolts and the weather stripping, et cetera, to service and maintain that car for its predicted lifetime in America. It's a it's no small undertaking um, to sell 
you know, I, I don't even know how many Arteons they sold last year, but it's not very many, a few thousand possibly. Yeah, I don't know if it would meet your 10,000 car volume. I don't like think so. Yeah, it's, it's generally undersold the Stinger, which, you know, a car company like Hyundai and Kia, you know, maybe they can go, eh, we'll have a loss leader now and then because they're on a roll. Um, but not so much if you're not on a roll. And that kind of leads me to the next thing that I, I, I thought I think we should mention to the yeah. viewers here is that, um, you know, we have a Civic SI in. So I have this trouble occasionally thinking of the Civic SI critically. I, I tend to look at it through rose colored glasses and I have to reset my framing of the SI every time I drive one. So in 1985, we had the first SI. It had 91 horsepower. And that year, Honda sold over 100,000 units a year for the very first time in the United States. Volkswagen was three times bigger than Honda. And then, of course, come this year, and Honda's actually bigger than Chevy uh, in 2021. So Honda's no longer the plucky upstart. They're the establishment in the United States. And Volkswagen, they're still selling right around 300,000 units, just like they were in 1985. Yeah, it's actually worth mentioning, just in terms of the world, in the U.S., we kind of think of Volkswagen as like something that's just a little bit better established than Mitsubishi, like it's in that class. They sell less than Subaru on a volume basis in the U.S. Globally, Volkswagen Group cars are 12 out of 100 vehicles, mm -hmm. and the VW brand itself is 8 out of 100 vehicles in the U.S., that number is less than two and a half vehicles out of 100. And yeah. this is where people scratch their heads because it's called the giant of Wolfsburg for a reason. And the reason is volume. Mm -hmm. And and Volkswagen is a ginormous multinational corporation. I mean, they're huge, huge, huge in Europe. They've And they own a bazillion brands. So, you know, it's, it is, if you drive around Europe, you will see Volkswagen group things everywhere, even if they're not under the Volkswagen nameplate. Um, there's, there's a Volkswagen on every corner, practically. And I believe in 1985, it's interesting you mentioned this, I think that was the Motor Trend import car of the year that year in 85. And it's funny because some of those performance threads of like weirdo enthusiast Volkswagen still exist, but they are the most bifurcated brand I can imagine because you've got these insane crazy cars like the Arteon 300 horsepower liftback, the GTI and the Golf R. And then you've got this attempt to be ultra mainstream with the most vanilla but largest in class SUV offering in the Taos and the Tiguan and the Atlas. And this yeah. is all under the same roof. And I've always kind of wondered, you know, if Volkswagen had just stuck with selling us some European things now and then, honestly, I would have to think that would A, be more successful and B, be less expensive. So, you know, why can't we get a Polo here? Why can't we get an Up? Why can't we get this and that and the other? Like, just open the European portfolio pick a few random models and shill them to Americans as the European option. You know, do you, do you like, you know, a uh, German beer? Why wouldn't you like a German car too? And it's not like they haven't had success in group. The Audi A5 is the best selling Volkswagen group, or excuse me, um, Q5 is the best selling Volkswagen group product in the United States. It's made in Mexico. Mm -hmm. It's a mainstream compact SUV that outsells any Volkswagen branded product. And Audi back in 1990, it was a 1990. It was in the toilets. Uh, yeah. Audi back in 1990 is like what Jaguar is today in terms of market yeah. penetration. Volkswagen, the Volkswagen Group has had that haphazard approach to their product, 
And Audi has been much more focused on chasing BMW and Mercedes, which for them has been a good goal. And, you know, they haven't had this like knee jerk reaction to every trend in the wind. It's a slow progression, slow migration to crossovers over time and adapting to what the others are doing. But they haven't, you know, done done as many random things as Volkswagen has tried. I mean, it's amazing to see the success of Audi, though, because it's basically the same people in the same company. Now, I know Audi is like 1% publicly traded in Germany, but I'm sure they're taking orders from the mothership. <laughs> and after two decades of futility, Audi has arrived. But yeah. Volkswagen is still kind of spinning its wheels. They revived Lamborghini. They brought Bugatti back from the dead. They turned Bentley into a quasi-reliable mainstream luxury vehicle. And Audi has been established where, you know, 30 years ago, you thought of Audi, you thought of a car with runaway acceleration going through a brick wall. Now it's a BMW rival. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how the tides have turned there. Um, but yeah, odd, odd thing there. And, you know, it, it's... It's worth noting that brands that had much worse positioning in the 80s, look at, at the Korean brands. I mean, yeah. they were truly terrible even into the 90s. And Hyundai and Kia are now over a million and a half units in the U.S. in 2021. So they're they're Honda-sized and growing faster than Honda and growing faster than Toyota in the United States as well. Um, and they have managed to overcome those brand perception issues. So, you know... It, if Volkswagen had attempted to overcome those issues, they could have by now, but it's clear that they, I don't think they have. So now they're bouncing around between Mitsubishi and Subaru volumes, but there's a moonshot on the horizon. And depending on who you talk to, Volkswagen is looking to spend somewhere between seven and 86 billion. These numbers have been thrown around on electrification. And right now, 73% of Volkswagen sold in the U.S. are crossover SUVs. And that is where they are focusing on electrification. Is this the reboot they need, the full blank slate? I have to say that I... I am curious. Uh, I think that it will be good for them if they can meet the production targets. And that's really going to be the tricky thing. If Volkswagen really wants to push the needle, they need better prioritization than they have right now. Uh, we just received an email actually from a customer or a viewer, I should say, that is offering to let us uh, drive his Rivian. And we said, well, you know, just curious, how long did you place the order for the Rivian? How long have you been waiting, et cetera? What else did you look at? Um, and apparently he was ready to ditch the Rivian and get an ID4, but he'd been on the waiting list for 22 weeks um, to get the ID4. And then his name came up in the Rivian. He said, forget it. I'm not waiting anymore. I will buy the Rivian instead. But he wanted the Volkswagen over the Rivian, which was intriguing. Um, so wait, wait times like that for a car that is supposed to be uh, RAV4 CRV attainable and RAV4 and CRV priced, that is problematic. Um, you know, nobody wants to wait for their mainstream, you know, family mobile. Uh, you just want to go to the dealer, you want to pick a red one, a blue one, a green one, and then you want to go home with it. Um, so that's, I think, going to be their biggest problem. Now, their factory in Chattanooga, honestly, it's been kind of a slow roll. Last year, I toured the factory. There was a program there in in, uh, in Chattanooga for the new all-wheel drive version of the ID4, which also seems to be taking a bit of time. Um, and at that point, the factory was making some prototype vehicles, but it looked fairly complete. Um, as I understand it, they have still not produced any ID4s in the factory. And this is a big deal um, because 
they are really looking to make the ID4 the face of the brand in the United States. And there will be other IDs. There will be ID3s. There will be um, performance versions down the line. And, and that crossover compact SUV format is going to be duplicated in different scales. It's a strange thing that you found there was a wait list because you mentioned it was supposed to be RAV4, Nissan Rogue, CRV-sized, and CRV-attainable, but they also made a deliberate attempt to make it CRV and Rogue vanilla. Uh, they could have gone with a performance angle. They could have made it a German performance car. They could have given a luxury sheen. They focused almost exclusively on a vehicle that feels like a gasoline car as you drive it and costs what a gasoline car costs. Was that the right aim, just to go for price? And Yeah, it is tricky. Uh, I would say that I'm okay with it at this point in time because Tesla has become so much more expensive. They've had eight price increases in 2021, uh, a decent number in 2022, and now a Model Y starts at uh, 64440 So the competition from Tesla is is significantly more expensive. It ends up being more like $30,000 more expensive once you factor in the tax credit that Volkswagen, of course, still gets uh, because they don't have the volume. So I think that the the benchmark has now moved far enough away that it leaves room for mainstream vehicles to fill in the gap. But I would say that the trouble has been Ford took off like a rocket with the model Mach-E and uh, they've really been making huge strides in adjusting Mach-E production and ramping that up. Uh, so uh, by the end of this calendar year, they should have produced, I think, around 120,000 this year. Um, their original production goal was something insanely small, like 50,000 units a year. And they're trying to get to a quarter million mach a year by 2024. Um, so if Volkswagen can't have that kind of ramp up, I'm a little bit concerned. But I would say that that the pricing is right. So someone that wants to go into an EV, the ID4 is the least expensive all-wheel drive EV. It's one of the least expensive long-range EVs. It's about the price of a Kona or a Bolt, but it gets the tax credit, it has a big cargo area. Um, it's very practical and pragmatic on the inside. Uh, and it's easy to fit into your life because even if you can't charge it at home regularly, it comes with three years unlimited charging on the Electrify America network, which, of course, Volkswagen owns. So that's a huge sales advantage for them is having that charging network. Um, obviously, validating your car on the charging network helps, too. Um, but that that free limitless charging, basically, uh, is a great deal. Now, they, they recently adjusted that down to unlimited 30-minute sessions, but you just plug and unplug and you just unlimited 30 minute session your id4 yeah the interesting thing to me there is that there are two different things going on there's the targeting of the vehicle and the performance of the vehicle and then there's the ramp of the production now i don't know whether the ramp is constrained by tooling i don't know if it's constrained by supply chains i don't know if it's specifically battery constrained but it's a problem because as you mentioned Ford has proved with the Mustang Mach-E yeah. that you can absolutely have success with a non-Tesla mainstream compact crossover SUV in America. The other thing is the performance parameters they chose. They launched with a 201 horsepower rear-wheel drive only vehicle that was maybe the only EV on the market specifically tuned not to give you all the torque from a stall. And the only thing I can think of is that they specifically chose this to make it feel less like an EV and more like, say, a RAV4. Hmm. I'm amazed to hear that your friend was even looking for a car like this because I don't know what demand this satisfies. Yeah, it's um, performance is definitely better than the average compact crossover. So 
this this is this is the I guess the trouble between what people think they would want and what people actually buy. So when people think EV, they think Tesla, they think fast, they think that instant acceleration, the punchiness, et cetera. But when that same shopper says, well, I can't afford one of those, I'll just go buy a Nissan Rogue, then you get zero to 60 in eight and a half seconds ish. And you could ID four and go zero to 60 in seven seconds ish. And so it's decently faster than a Rogue and it has that sort of more instant acceleration but it's certainly not where a lot of EVs are advertised. Um, and then you could get the dual motor one, but the ID4 dual motor is actually about the same zero to 60 time as the new uh, Subaru Solterra and Toyota BZ4X, uh, just for funsies. BZ4X reminds me of what happens if you play Scrabble with a six-year-old and they're like, BZ4X is totally a word. Look it up in the dictionary. I get a triple word score. Yeah, when you said it was beyond zero 4x, I'm like, well, why is it beyond zero? It's exactly zero. They, they tell it's me what exactly it means. Zero. Their Toyota's mission supposedly with beyond zero is that they will be investing. It's part of a holistic plan where they're investing in other carbon neutral and carbon negative solutions. So um, perhaps at some point in the future, there could be plastics that are net negative rather than net zero. We'll see how that works. But yeah, it's an odd name. It, let's just be frank. BZ4X is an odd name. Why is the B superscript? Why is it lowercase? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like some illegal like pesticide that would have been banned years ago. Like, and I'm sure they will sell everyone they can build. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they will. It, it's gonna, but trucks like that are important if we can still call them trucks because they mainstream EVs. So now Electrify America, Volkswagen is paying its penance for the diesel cheating scandal. For all of the bad stuff we've said about VW's market presence in the U.S., it doesn't seem like it really suffered at all in the aftermath of diesel cheating. They paid a penalty for billions, but not in sales volumes. It's true. Yeah, didn't really seem to hurt them at all. Uh, it hurt Audi, I think, a little bit more somehow. Um and outside the United States, they definitely saw sales decreases in some markets. South Korea, for instance, Volkswagen and Audi Group sales just fell off a cliff, uh, seemingly due to the Dieselgate scandal. In the U.S., I just don't know if the aver average buyer, obviously some people care, I don't know if the average buyer is so offended by an emissions scandal when the fuel economy was still good. I think they would have been more offended if the truth had come out and it turns out nobody's getting the fuel economy. Uh, they had gamed the system and everybody was really getting 10 miles per gallon less than they thought they were in their diesel car. But saying that the diesel car is 5, 10, 20 times more polluting than it was supposed to be, I kind of have a feel that the average customer just says, so what? Yeah, and I kind of agree with you because this happened in 2015 when public and by 2000, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, Volkswagen's back up to a higher volume than it had in 2015. Mm -hmm. So Electrify America comes out of this. It's part of the penalty that Volkswagen paid. U.S. federal government says you have to spend $2 billion putting together a national high-speed charging network. Is this going to offer VW any specific competitive advantage? You mentioned that there's free charging with some of their vehicles from within mm -hmm. the group. But we also know that with plug-and-charge... Uh, Ford Mustang can use that. A uh, uh, Lucid right. can use it. 
So does it offer VW any real advantage that they created this, or is it just the advantage of other brands that were quicker to market? Um, other than the free charging on EA, I don't think it does. And I, someone might be able to write in and tell us, um, but I do, as I understand it, there are there were some constraints around organizations. So EA is a wholly owned subsidiary of Volkswagen. They're attempting to try and sell half of it off. They want another company to try and buy it and 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 somehow have a joint venture, et cetera. But Volkswagen, as I understand it, is not allowed to exert too much control over Electrify America. I'm not sure whether that's by design or by choice. So whether Volkswagen simply chooses to have a hands-off relationship with EA or whether they're required to have a somewhat hands-off relationship with EA, I'm not sure. Um, you know, logically, the the easy answer to this would have been, why don't we call them Volkswagen charging stations? I mean, that would have been a stroke of genius. Like, uh that's that probably would have been tricky to get other manufacturers to buy into things. Um, but I am constantly surprised when a new EV comes out and then we hear from a manufacturer that they're having a charging dealer with who knows what charging company for these things like Subaru and uh, Toyota very consciously, uh, and, and actually secondarily Volks, uh, Volvo with the C40, very consciously did not choose Electrify America as their preferred charging vendor. I was surprised by that because nobody else has the kind of charging infrastructure that they do. Um, if you look at, at the charging infrastructure map for, for what DC fast chargers are supposed to be for, which is getting from point A in the United States to point B. I want to go from San Francisco to Houston, and then I want to take a road trip to New York City. Tesla and Electrify America are the only networks that will do that for you. Um, sure, there are going to be some green lots chargers and some blink chargers and some charge point things here and there. And if you live in a downtown area, a, a lot of commentary I get from, from uh, other journalists that aren't really into EVs and they don't understand it, they'll say, well, I got this EV for a week and there's nowhere near me to charge. Well, sure there is. You plug it in at home. You plug it in at the office. You know, the average EV does not go to a DC fast charger every day to plug in. That's not how they work. So you don't generally find the faster DC fast charge stations in cities they're between cities because yes. that's what they're for. They're to get you from the one city to the other. Um, and EA is the only one that will do that at the moment. It really baffles me now that we've seen from Tesla that the supercharger network is at least 50% of their competitive advantage. Like a big part of the reason people buy Teslas is you can travel long distance in a Tesla almost anywhere in developed nations because they built out a fast charging network. There are no secrets anymore. This is not a speculative thing. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't every major automaker, which is claiming to spend 20, 30, 40 billion on EVs between now and 2030, just say, let's earmark $500 million each one of us and build out this network yeah. it's that there i think there are two things the first one is it's this very pragmatic attitude that so many companies have they say well the numbers tell us that average ev buyers dc fast charge one percent of the time it's somewhere right around one to two percent even tesla owners not a lot of DC fast charging really goes on. The majority happens at home or at the office. At home is something like 80 to 90%, high, high, high percentage. And then there's at the office, 
at, you know, destination chargers or whatever you want to call the places that are at hotels and coffee shops and whatever. Um, very limited number in the DC fast charge station. But when you talk to customers, customers want the DC fast charging. They think I'm going to wake up today and for no apparent reason, suddenly decide that I want to drive to Louisiana today. And I, you know, it happens every Wednesday for me. Every Wednesday I wake up and I decide that I need to drive 2,000 miles somewhere, um, which is not normal, but that's how customers think. The second problem is I think how also has doomed hydrogen in a way, at least momentarily in the U.S. It's the, well, I build cars. I don't build gas stations. Why should I build a charging station? I don't build cars. Why I, I build cars rather. Why should I build a hydrogen station? That's someone else's job. Shell does that. BP does that. You know, Exxon does that. I just build the things that take people around. Someone else is responsible for this. And the answer has historically been because if you don't, who's going to do it at the beginning? Maybe at some point later in life, there's going to be a a business case for the charging network. But it should be noted that none of these charging stations really make a lot of money. You know, it, it's true. But I do think automakers could save themselves a ton of money if they just said, look, we're not going to spend tens of billions of dollars to get the price per kilowatt hour of a battery to a like a cheap level. Let's just make sure every car has 800 volt, 350 kilowatt charging capacity, that chargers are everywhere, including in rural America. And then we can just build every car with 40 to 50 kilowatt hours of battery. If you know you can recharge it in 11 minutes anywhere in the country that kills the need for cheap batteries and it it fixes the inhibition about buying an electric car at the same time. Yeah, it could help. It is worth noting that depending on the charging station that you're talking about, the 350 kW chargers that exist can be total installation costs can be upwards of a quarter million a pop. So they are quite expensive. Um, Tesla has standardized theirs, and so the Tesla superchargers, just because there are more of them and they were involved earlier on, are considerably less expensive to install uh, and build. Um, but the the somewhat lack of standardization and some of the things that are swirling around the the ABB chargers that that uh, ChargePoint uses, they're decently more expensive than the Tesla chargers. The price has been coming down very rapidly, but it's still in a place where it's not ideal. Let's put it that way. Um, but then we have to come back to the, you know, the, the limited cases where manufacturers have have had a little arrangement with a charging network. You know, Volvo just announced we're going to put in 19 charging locations in a corridor between Seattle and Denver. Who knows why? Um, because that's where every American needs to drive. And it's not even a, a network of fast chargers. It's a, a, a mix of fast, medium and slow chargers along this path at Starbucks locations. Nifty but not really the answer. Um, and then we have, you know, Jeep that wants to put some solar panel chargers uh, in national parks so you can off-road your 4 by e And then we have Rivian teaming up with different national parks to actually put real level two chargers in national parks. That makes a lot more sense um, because if you're going to have an EV that can go to the back of beyond, you need to be able to get it back home again. Um, and that's the problem with the Toyota and Subaru Um, joint venture EV is that they truly are the most off-road capable EV that an American is going to be able to buy under $80,000 easily. It's uh, the next level in capability is going to be Hummer, um, Rivian, maybe F-150 Lightning, depending on the trim, a lot bigger though for Hummer and F-150 Lightning. So if you're looking for, you know, crossover with a dual motor setup, software designed for off-roading, eight inches of ground clearance, that's kind of it. 
but they only go 222 miles. Yeah. So you can get to that national park. But if you do anything there, you might not get home. You know, here's the thing. If you want cowboys to adopt trucks, you're going to have to have charging in rural America. And I think that's where the balance between like battery capacity and charging starts to shift in favor mm -hmm. of, you know, investment in charging because that's a real market. There are a lot of urban cowboys who are going to park yep. these things in a garage or a driveway every single night in the suburbs. But if you really want a cultural shift in attitude towards EVs, you've got to have charging out in the Midwest. You've got to have charging in the deep South. You got to have charging where, you know, it's sparsely populated. People are using their trucks for work. And while it's true that every EV owner thinks he might hypothetically drive 400 miles a day off-road towing horses, if you are actually towing horses or driving off-road or doing work with your truck, especially if it's one of the entry-level work mm -hmm. truck versions of something like an F-150, then there really do need to be chargers out in, I don't want to say yeah. the middle of nowhere, but sparsely populated areas. And that's going to be key for the cultural transition as well as just selling the volumes. And that is a tricky push. You know, on a business side, put investing a million dollars or so for a small bank of DC fast chargers in a place where EVs don't exist is a necessary step towards adoption, but it's not a very good business case. Um, the other problem, which I think is not reported on very well, is just the power requirements and the power realities around DC yeah. fast charge stations. So I recently was talking to a friend of mine. He writes for Autoblog, um, and there was a piece there, and he's you know, talking about the barrier to, to some of this entry is that rest stops cannot be commercialized. So we can't have a DC fast charge station in a national rest stop on an interstate highway because you can't have commercial resources there. But the other problem that I think that article skips is most rest stops in America don't have three-phase power. If you're in rural America, you don't have three-phase power. And even in residential America, you don't either. And three-phase power is required to deliver the amount of oomph that you need to run a DC fast charge station. There's a reason that, that superchargers and the big Electrify America stations are always, always, always in strip malls, commercial areas, uh, industrial areas, et cetera. They're not on your average street corner. They're not located where the gas station is, your friendly neighborhood gas station. And they're not necessarily in logical corridors for travel either because there's no power infrastructure there to power it. Um, you know, I happen to live off grid, so I am intimately aware of how much power we can consume. And, you know, if the oven's on broil and it's summer because the air conditioning, so the air conditioning's on, uh, you know, we live with well pumps. So we're pumping water, we're pressurizing to put in the house, we're heating everything, all of that together. And we plug in, you know, a toaster, maybe we could get up to about 12 kW, but we're talking about one slot for one EV that's going to consume 350 kW for, you know, in a Hummer, more than an hour to get yes. fully charged. So, you know, we're talking incredible amounts of power. Um, and that kind of power infrastructure just doesn't happen in, you know, your, your neighborhood 7-Eleven necessarily. And I think it's important to remember that, yeah, there are going to have to be some shifts. There are going to be heavier duty power transmission lines. There's going to have to be a build out specifically for EV charging to places where you don't have three phase charging. There's going to have to be a discussion about whether state owned rest shop uh, rest stops, for example, can have chargers present because charging stalls take up a lot of space. And 
at least for the foreseeable future, charging will take more time than fueling. Yeah. Um, and I think we're probably just about out of time in this episode to transition mm-hmm. to hydrogen. But I think we're going to save that topic for the next episode because that is a whole different discussion about technology, infrastructure, yeah. and the balance between the car and the fueling. And I think that's an interesting discussion in its own. So we talked about new car test drives, the Kia EV6. We talked about Volkswagen Group and its Mm -hmm. long, circuitous history in America. We talked about whether the EV reboot of Volkswagen might be a possible break in the clouds. And of course, we transitioned from Electrify America into broader questions about EV charging infrastructure in America. Alex, do you have any closing thoughts on this? Yeah, I will add one thought to this uh, this process here. We're, there's going to be a video on the EV Buyer's Guide uh, channel if anybody wants to go deeper dive into why three-phase power is important. But this did bring up uh, in my mind uh, the reality that you'll notice EV shoppers, especially really into EV uh, shoppers, European EVs tend to charge faster than American EVs on level 2, 240-volt power. And it's not because... 240 volt power is native to Europe, just like it is here. Here we have a split system, 120, 240. There it's just 240. The main reason is the average home in Europe does have three-phase power, which is kind of an odd twist. So you actually can plug in with three-phase power in a wider variety of locations. So a lot of EVs have those chargers built into the car. So for a 50% increase in conductor size and conductor weight and number of conductors, you can have a three-fold increase in the amount of power that you can jam into your battery. So it makes those 20kW, 25kW onboard chargers more realistic than in the United States. So in the United States, the connectors are big, everything is bulky. Over in Europe, you can get that same kind of power into your EV with much slimmer cables, uh, much sexier wall units, etc. It is kind of a fundamental problem, uh, just the way that our American power infrastructure was set up in the 1800s. And for those of you out in cyberspace, pretty much the limit of onboard power uh, you're going to see 11 kilowatt chargers on U.S. market cars. That's pretty much the upper limit of what you get on board in the vehicle that mm-hmm. you can charge at your house right now. Yep. There are there are a few little asterisks. The new F-150 Lightning will do 19, and uh, GM's new Ultium packs uh, will support 19 kW charging, but the Hummer won't have it. Apparently, the Cadillac will, though. So uh, we're, we're bumping up against that 20 kW limit here soon. And uh, Tesla has had a history of supporting 20kW on and off. They used to have a dual charger option. Uh, they've now replaced that with a single charger that is uh, up there, I believe, I'm sure people will correct us, it's somewhere around 15, 16kW for their bigger models. Um, so I think those, those chargers are coming, but it's a slow roll, and it does mean really crazy conductor sizes. So um, that is the downside to that. Uh, We have the F-150 Lightning on order. You'll actually, guys will actually see a review on that in May. Uh, We actually ordered one for long-term review. We're buying one ourselves uh, and it comes with the 80 amp uh, charger apparently bundled with the truck. So I am eager to see just how big and unwieldy this cable is. It may be very DC fast charger cable size because that's a lot of power. So there you have it. Hydrogen, Hummers, and the F-150 Lightning to come on future editions of the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. I'm Tim. He's Alex. Signing off. See everybody later. Later.